It's a wonderful privilege uh, to be here uh, with you all this morning and to uh, be asked to open God's Word uh, with you. Uh, little known fact, I've actually known your pastor probably longer than, than any of you. Uh, the church I grew up in partnered with, with Eric when he was a missionary in Ukraine. And so some of my earliest memories were hearing uh, Pastor Huber come and give, give reports when he was on furlough. So it's a particular privilege for me to come and stand in the pulpit of uh, someone who, who ministered to me and uh, some of my uh, earliest, most formative years. I uh, will be preaching this morning from the book of Malachi. Uh, the book of Malachi, the opening, the opening verses of the book. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. I'll be preaching from uh, verses 1 through through 5. Hear now the word of our great God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, would you please pray with me? Our God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to receive and to understand all that you would teach us this morning from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us and apply your word to our hearts that we might live as unto you. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Malachi is a difficult book. It's not difficult in the sense that it's particularly difficult to understand. But it's difficult in the sense that it contains a difficult message. Or to be more precise, it contains a series of difficult messages, six to be exact. And it's made all the more difficult because these are messages for an already beleaguered, discouraged, troubled people. Uh, The book consists of six disputations or accusations, each of which unfolds in a similar pattern. Perhaps you're familiar with it. First, God levels a charge against his people. His people then respond with an objection. Then God proceeds to prove his case with a, a penetrating and at times painful demonstration of Israel's sins. 
As Israel quickly discovers, God's accusations do not address merely their outward behavior, as concerning as this is, nor do they even uh, address merely their inner thoughts, though these two are, are exposed and condemned. But God's accusations cut to the deepest heart attitudes and the deepest motivations of his covenant people, revealing the staggering depth and breadth of their spiritual bankruptcy. And in this way, there's a, a sort of relentless quality to the book of Malachi, as complaint follows complaint, and divine accusation follows divine accusation, which is then followed by another divine accusation. Israel's spiritual sickness is revealed to be more systemic and more fatal and debilitating than they could have ever imagined. This is indeed a difficult book, and what it contains is, by and large, very hard words for God's people. And this is important to note because it makes this opening oracle all the more staggering. As the Lord prepares to unfold the sins of his people, notice how he begins. Notice this very first oracle, the first word that God speaks to his people is a declaration of his unwavering, unqualified, and unconditional love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord, verse 2. This is how he begins. I have loved you, says the Lord. God has loved Israel in her sinful past. God loves Israel in her sinful present, and he will love Israel in her sinful future. This does not excuse or minimize the seriousness of Israel's sin, but it does provide a critical lens. It's a critical lens for Israel. It's a critical lens for us. It's a critical lens by which Israel must understand the hard and difficult words that follow. God confronts Israel with her sin because he loves them. And God is calling his people to repentance because of his unwavering commitment to redeem them and to give them a future characterized not by curse and death, but a future characterized by the fullness of life and joy and blessing. And so, in this opening disputation, we discover what is, in a sense, at the very heart of Israel's sins, the heart of their rebellion, what we might call the sin beneath the sins. What is the sin beneath all of Israel's sins? I think here we see that at the heart of, of the various sins and the shortcomings that are soon going to be exposed and condemned lies a, a fundamental doubt. It's a fundamental disbelief. Israel doubts that God loves them. Israel doubts that God cares about their sorrows. 
and their afflictions. Israel doubts that God is for them and that he will deliver them, that he will make good on his promises to usher them into a glorious future. How does God respond? How does God respond to his people's unbelief? God responds to Israel's unfaithful, their, their, their doubting, their distrustful hearts with a declaration of his sovereign, uh, unwavering, uh, electing love. Though what follows is hard and difficult words, we learn here at the very beginning that God's ultimate goal in speaking such hard words is not to crush his people, but to build them up. It's to engender in his people, not just in Malachi's day, but his people of every age. It's to engender in them a deep faith and a heartfelt repentance and an unwavering hope in him and in his son and in the world to come. But just as the revelation of God's love that would come in the person of Jesus would meet rejection from his own people, so God's love declared here by his prophet Malachi is also met with what? Resistance and opposition. And this is the first thing we see in our text that I want to consider with you this morning. That God's love is questioned by God's own people. It's the first point. God's love is questioned. This is something that uh, every teacher, I think, knows, and that is that there are different kinds of questions, aren't there? All right, there are questions that are asked out of a genuine curiosity and genuine concern and desire to understand a topic, but then there are also questions that are asked to challenge and to oppose and to contradict. And immediately following God's unqualified and unequivocal declaration of his love for his people, his people respond with a question. And we need to see that this is a question of the latter sort. It is a question that's designed to oppose, to contradict, and to challenge. This question, you see, Israel is not expressing a genuine curiosity or confusion. Israel's question is an opposing question. It's intended to contradict and to challenge God. I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us, says Israel? With this question, they're saying, in effect, no, you haven't. Now, such a response, I think, would strike most of us as somewhat surprising, wouldn't it? How could God's covenant people even imply that God hasn't acted lovingly and faithfully toward them? Given all that God has done for Israel, how could they possibly question God's love for them? I remember as a young boy once returning home from an entire day at an amusement park. When my family walked in the door, there was a phone message uh, from a friend, and he is inviting me over for a sleepover. Uh, I think taking into consideration how exhausted I was, my parents said, no, not tonight. And I remember looking them straight in the eyes 
and saying to them without a hint of irony, you never let me have any fun. You never let me have any fun. I think this is how we hear Israel's question here. Like a child whose swimsuit is still wet from the, 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 right, the, the water slide, saying to his parents, you never let me have any fun. But I don't think that this is exactly what Israel is implying. I don't think Israel is ignoring the fact that God has loved them in the, in the past. Every Israelite, I think, would have, would have known the, the, the wonderful accounts of God's acts of deliverance in the days of Moses, when God brought his people out of Egypt, delivering them from the house of slavery and bondage. With great, he brings them out with great signs and wonders. They would have known of God's faithfulness to them in raising up King David, a man after God's own heart. They would have heard of God's faithfulness in blessing King Solomon with great wealth, with great wisdom, with great renown, and they certainly would have been familiar with the, with the glories of the former temple that Solomon had built. Even closer to their own day. Right? This post-exilic community would have known, perhaps even remembered, depending on when the book was written, they would have heard of God's faithfulness in delivering them from the curse of exile, bringing them out of Babylon, restoring them to the promised land. Israel's question, how have you loved us, isn't denying any of these. These great demonstrations of God's love and faithfulness. But what it does is that it implies that God's faithfulness and love to them in the far and distant past is of little present value. It's of little present value. They are asking, in effect, how have you loved us lately? What good is your love for us in ages past today? In our present struggles in our present afflictions and hardships. Though we, we can't pinpoint Malachi's ministry with the, the kind of exactness we would like, I think we can with confidence say that he ministered in the post-exilic period. And life in post-exilic Israel was incredibly hard. Many saw their day, to use the words of another post-exilic prophet, Zechariah, right? They understood their day to be a day of small things. Gone were the glory days of Israel's king and kingship. Gone were the glories of Solomon's temple. Gone was Israel's national independence and influence on the world stage. And what about those great promises? Those promises of the prophet Isaiah who centuries earlier declared to those who, return, who would return from Babylon, arise and shine. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The nations shall come to your light and kings will come to the brightness of your rising. There were no nations coming to Israel's light. There were no kings, not even one, streaming to Jerusalem. 
What about the great promises of Ezekiel, who spoke of Israel's future with these words? He said, you shall dwell securely, and none shall make you afraid, and they shall no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. Again, what happened to this great promise? Or even more recently, the prophecies of Zechariah, through whom God declared, for there shall be a sowing of peace the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. What happened to these glorious promises? Israel, a light to the nations, a sowing of blessing. They had all yet to be realized. None had come to pass, and many in Malachi's day doubted if they ever would. How is your faithfulness in the past of use for us today? When seen in this light, I think we can see how Israel's struggles are not all that different from our own because we too are prone to questioning God. We too are, are prone in our struggles uh, to doubt and to wonder what good God's love and faithfulness to us in ages past is for us today. I think for many of us, our struggle is not in believing that Jesus lived or believing that Jesus died for our sins, or believing that Jesus rose on the third day. We might believe this to be true, but yet we fail to see its significance for us in the here and now. And the gospel message comes to ring hollow in our ears. We too struggle with being so preoccupied in the difficulties and worries and fears and sorrows of our daily life. We can fail to see the present value of the resurrection of the Son of God for our sins. And so we too can come to question God's love for us and God's commitment to us. And so I think that before we, we stand in superior judgment on Israel in Malachi's day, you know, sort of looking at them and saying, tisk tisk, there they go again, doubting God's love, right? Thinking, you had the exodus, you had the covenants, you had the kingdom, you had the prophets, you had the restoration from exile. How could you possibly question God's love? Before we do this, I think we need to remember that we have something far greater. We have Christ. We have the fullness of God incarnate and the fulfillment of all God's promises. We have the announcement of an empty tomb and we have the message of a resurrected Christ who died for us and rose in triumph over a foe far greater than Edom. And yet we too can find ourselves questioning God's love. Wondering of what significance a dying and rising Savior is for us in our daily work, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our churches. We too can find ourselves wondering if God knows and if he does, if he cares. 
But how does God respond? Notice how God responds to his people's challenging and questioning and doubting hearts. This is the second point. It's that God demonstrates his love. God's love is first questioned, and secondly, it's demonstrated. God does not respond to his people's doubting hearts and opposing tongues with the answer I think many of us would expect. We would probably expect God to respond with a somewhat exasperated version of the famous Sonnet 43 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which begins, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And this is what we would expect from God, right? God to begin enumerating the manifold ways he showers his blessings upon his people day in and day out. God doesn't respond that way at all. How does God respond? God responds to Israel's doubting and questioning disputatious hearts with a history lesson. He says in verse 2, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And of course, he's, he's referring to Israel's origins here. Uh, their origins as descendants of the great patriarch Jacob. And you'll remember that it was during her pregnancy, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, received an oracle prophecy from the Lord. And the prophecy said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. That's Genesis 25, verse 23. And then we're told that when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so they called his name uh, Jacob. I don't typically think of twins as being older or younger, uh, since they came out as rough, uh, about roughly the same time. However, I do know that twins happen to speak this way. Right? I, I know of twins, uh, remember overhearing one brother reminding uh, his, uh, his twin sibling that he was older, so she had to listen to him. In the ancient Near East, at the dawn of the second millennium, a birth order was of immense significance. Even if that order was only a matter of minutes, it was still incredibly important. For many cultures, the oldest son, even oldest by a few seconds, would receive the lion's share of the family inheritance. That son would exercise a degree of power and authority within the family and within the community. But God here is reminding Israel that he did not choose Esau, who was the oldest and the strongest and the father's favorite and the one who it would have been culturally acceptable to privilege. God did not choose Esau to be the child of the promise, but he cho chose Jacob, the younger, the weaker, certainly the culturally less acceptable, he chose Jacob to be the one through whom he would raise up a people for himself. The one through whom he would bring the Savior of the world. And this is the significance of this language of love and hate. 
right? Love and hate here in Malachi 1. This is covenant language. This is covenantal uh, language which does not primarily have to do with the emotions. When we think of love and hate, we think of, of how we feel. And that's not primarily what's in view here. What's primarily in view is, is, is God's covenantal commitment, faithfulness to a person or a promise. Right? It has to do with God's uh, faithfulness to his relationship that he had established with Israel through their ancestor Jacob years ago. The significance of that commitment comes in a sense oh, when Jacob was still in the womb. Because it, it taught Isaac and it taught Rebekah, it taught Israel, and it teaches us, it teaches us something of, of God's sovereignty in election. That God is sovereign in election. God didn't choose Jacob because he was morally superior to Esau. I think in, in many ways you can make the argument that Jacob was morally inferior to, to Esau. They were both scoundrels. But God didn't choose Jacob because he was morally superior. God didn't choose Jacob because he was more spiritually sensitive than Esau. God didn't choose Jacob because he was stronger. He, he wasn't. Because he was more gifted or more intelligent. He didn't choose any of us for these reasons either. Nor did God choose Jacob because he, he foresaw that Jacob would have faith in him. Or because he saw that Jacob would reform his life in obedience to God's word. Rather, rather, Jacob exercised faith in God. And Jacob reformed his life, albeit modestly, in obedience to God's word precisely because God had elected him. God's election comes first. It was while they were still in the womb, as Paul reasons in Romans 9. He says, though they, had, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9. 11. Brothers and sisters, Jacob's standing before God, Israel's standing before God, and your standing and my standing before God as righteous and as beloved and as acceptable in his sight is all of God. It is all of God's grace. It is all of God's mercy. God's elect, electing Jacob was out of his mere good pleasure. According to the inscrutable counsel of his will, so he set his love upon Jacob. From before the foundation of the world, God would set his love upon Jacob and claimed this sinner as one for whom his son would give his life. God's response here to Israel's doubting and their questioning hearts is not only surprising, I think it's also challenging. It's challenging. It challenges them and it challenges us to consider how the reality of God's 
electing love is a comfort and an encouragement for us in our daily lives, especially in times of discouragement. This is the real function of this doctrine in the Bible. The doctrine of election is not revealed, you see, for the sake of, of philosophers to engage in metaphysical speculation. It's not revealed so that students at Christ, Christian colleges can have something to argue about over lunch. Throughout Scripture, rather, there is a clear pastoral purpose to this doctrine. It is used in every place to minister to God's people. It is revealed in order to instill humility in those who are tempted to pride. As Paul reasons in Ephesians 2 when he says that our salvation is a gift of God's grace so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast, he says. For all who are tempted to boast, for all who are tempted to pride, we're drawn back to this doctrine of election. Nothing in you or done by you, but surely on the basis of God's mercy do you stand in his presence this day. The doctrine of election is brought forth to minister to God's people, especially though in times of hardship, in times of, of struggle, personal struggle, corporate struggle. And so it should for us as well. It should give us confidence and courage and hope in the face of hardship and struggle. In the face of sorrows, it should remind us that we have been elected in Christ and therefore this world is not our home. We look forward to a better, a perfect, a blessed world. In Malachi's day, God sets forth this, this, this doctrine, this uh, teaching of election, his election of Jacob, as a response to his people's doubting hearts. They're, Israel's doubting and struggling to see. They couldn't see God's love for them. They couldn't understand how it's practically and daily relevant. And Malachi declares it yet again, that God has elected you, and in so doing, he grounds Israel's hope in God's faithfulness, his faithfulness in ages past, his faithfulness in the present, and his sure faithfulness in ages to come. In times of doubt and in times of struggle, Israel could look to God and to look to God, could look to God's word and remember that even despite appearances and experiences and despite their own feelings, God is for them and he is with them and he will never leave them or forsake them. The Theologian Gerhardus Voss once famously wrote that the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. God never began to love us at a particular moment in history because it's an eternal love. The prophet declares God's love uh, not only to point Israel to the past in order to demonstrate how his loving kindness has protected and preserved them throughout their generations, nor only to point them to their pre the present relevance 
of God's faithfulness, but the prophet wishes also to point Israel toward the future. He wants to remind Israel that God's commitment to them will one day broaden in its scope and it one day will be realized in a consummation more real than they could have ever imagined. And this brings us to our last point, that God's love is vindicated. God's love is questioned by his people. God's love is then demonstrated. And finally, it's vindicated. It is not the case that Israel in Malachi's day had no evidence of God's electing love in their lives. It is true that they struggled to see it, as is often true in our lives, as we struggle to see it, but it's not true that it wasn't there. The fact is that God's electing love was manifest in part in the history of these two great nations, the nation of Israel, who were the descendants of, of Jacob, and the nation of Edom, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. The Edomites were a constant scourge on Israel. When they weren't a threat militarily, which they, they often were, but when they weren't a threat militarily, they, they were a thorn in Israel's side as they were encouraging other hostile nations and armies uh, against Israel. The prophet Obadiah um, is all about the nation of, of Edom, and this prophecy portrays the Edomites' delight and rejoicing over the downfall of, of Israel. Right, for this reason, God, through his prophets, had announced his coming judgment on, on Edom. As, for example, in Ezekiel 35, God says, As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate. Mount Seir, Mount Seir was their answer to Jerusalem. Mount Seir and all Edom, all of it, and then they will know that I am the Lord. There was something... I think particularly appalling about the Edomites' hostility towards Israel. Right. Uh, and this may be traced back to how brothers should treat each other. They share a common descent, a common ancestry. And there should be in that at least sufficient motivation to weep over Israel's downfall. To at the very least take a hands-off policy when it came to other nations moving against your, uh, your um, uh, kindred. And so there's something particularly appalling, I think, in Edom's posture towards Israel. And it makes them a particular focus, therefore, of God's curse and God's judgment. The fruit of God's election of Israel for blessing and his election of Edom for cursing could be seen in some small measure in Malachi's day. Look at verse 2. God says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Edom at that moment lied in ruins. 
had become a haunt of jackals. And this is, this is conventional language and an image of God's judgment and God's curse on a nation. And now Israel, who we already know is in a particularly objectionable mood, right? You can imagine them objecting and, 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 and thinking, well, sure, now Edom is desolate. Right now, Edom appears to be under God's curse, but the fortunes of Edom, like the fortunes of Israel, and like the fortunes of so many states in the ancient world, they can rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall all the time. They're destroyed, but then very often, they're built up again. Edom had been destroyed before, and they had built themselves up again. And again, they, they were strengthened to harass Israel and to oppress Israel, Who's to say that this won't happen again? Is this how it will always be for God's people? A struggle. Israel rebuilding and Edom falling, and then Edom rebuilding and Israel falling. And to this question, God says no. No. In verse 4, we hear of two visions for Edom's future. The first is Edom's vision for, her, uh, for her, her, her own future. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Do you see here that Edom is acknowledging their defeat? But they're making plans to rebuild their ruined city. This is a demonstration, right, of, of uh, their power and of their might and of a reassertion of their autonomy and of their rebellion and no doubt a renewal of their threat to God's people. But then we see that happily, Edom's plans are not God's plans. In response to Edom's arrogant assertion that their future is going to be marked by power and glory and strength, the Lord of hosts declares his plans for Edom. The Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. The Lord is here declaring that Edom's greatest efforts, their most ingenious plans to establish themselves as a mighty kingdom, they will ultimately come to nothing. They may rebuild. They may be rebuilt for a time. But their ultimate fate is sure. They may employ the greatest technology. They may build their walls twice as thick. They may make their defenses twice as strong. They may surround themselves with the greatest allies and purchase the most sophisticated weaponry, all of which would preach to them security and power and wealth and wisdom. And yet God says they may rebuild but I will tear down. This is the ultimate fate of Edom. Not eternal life, but eternal destruction. In their arrogance, Edom says of themselves, we will rebuild, to which God in his righteous anger says, but I will tear down. Edom will seek to make a name for themselves. Like those who built the Tower of Babel, they sought to make a name for themselves. So too, Edom will seek to establish herself in permanence and in power. And yet God declares that their ultimate fate will be judgment and curse and death. 
Their fate will be symbolized with a, by this new name. And they will be called the wicked country and the one with whom the Lord is angry forever. These undesirable epithets disclose the identity and the fate of this country. They are a country characterized by wickedness and evil. And as such, they are a country that will receive a word of divine curse and judgment, and they will stand under God's curse and judgment forever. And that is how they will be known. And here, brothers and sisters, we have an important reminder that it is not Edom's word about themselves that determines their future. But it is God's word. It's God's word about Edom that determines their future. And the same is true for Israel. This is very important. To see that the same, that is, the same thing is true for Israel as well. Israel's word about themselves is less important than God's word about them. Israel thought their circumstances would never change. Israel thought they would be a, a subject people struggling to eke out a meager existence in a backwater province of a vast pagan empire. They hardly felt like a people chosen, a people beloved, a people treasured by the Lord of the universe. And we can feel, feel similarly, can't we? Perhaps you've had that feeling, perhaps even during this this pandemic, that this will never end, that things will never change. Perhaps you feel that way about your lives and your jobs and your marriages and your relationships with friends or with children, with church. Perhaps you feel that way about health. Yet here God announces the ultimate demise of all that opposes and oppresses his people. And in so doing, he's reminding Israel that their present struggles will not last forever. Their present struggle and their affliction and their humiliation is not the last word. But God will one day publicly and permanently vindicate himself and his people. And that's what he says in verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the, is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's important to note that God's power was barely evident within the borders of Israel. And it seemed to be completely absent outside the borders of Israel. But on the last day, God's people will see and they will understand that their God is not only sovereign now, but has in fact been sovereign all along. That their God's power is not limited to his people or to their, their land, but it encompasses the entire globe. And indeed has been working all things together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. At that particular moment... Yahweh's greatness beyond the borders of Israel was an article of faith. But God announces a day in which their faith will become sight. And God's people will see the ultimate and final destruction of all that stands opposed to God and all that stands opposed to his people. And Israel, on that day, will stand in awe 
and absolute wonder and worship and praise as they behold not their triumph, but God's triumph. His triumph over evil. His triumph over death. This is a picture, of course, of the last day, isn't it? When every knee shall bow before the Lord and every tongue confess. But it's a picture that isn't reserved for the last day. Because this is a victory that has begun already. It has, was begun at the cross. Because it is at the cross that Jesus triumphed over enemies far greater than Edom. The enemy of sin. And the curse of sin, which is death. It's a picture of God's far greater triumph over Satan and the rulers and principalities of this world. The fact is that in and of themselves, Israel deserved the exact same fate as Edom. But when God elected Israel, and when he elected you and me, he elected us in Christ as those for whom the Son would suffer, as those for whom the Son would die. Israel's future would be different from Edom's because Jesus, the true Israel, was torn apart on a Roman cross. That Jesus, the true Israel, would suffer the full weight of God's wrath and judgment for sins that he didn't commit. And he would, in a sense, receive a name. The name wicked. The name cursed. As the one who, though he knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was on the cross, Christians, on the cross that Jesus received the fate of Edom so that sinners like you, sinners like me, might receive his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, and stand in God's presence as redeemed sinners, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So that we might behold God's victory over all that threatens to undo us and destroy us. And that we might stand with this great confession on our lips. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. For those who are in Christ Jesus by faith this day. God's word to us is in effect the opposite of his word to Edom. What does he say to Edom? You may rebuild, but I will tear down. What does he say to us? You may tear down, but I will rebuild. God will rebuild. How do we tear down? Well, we tear down every day, don't we? We tear down with our sin, with our, our doubts. We tear down as we fall and as we stumble, and as we, we struggle to believe God's promises, we, left to ourselves, would make a shipwreck of our lives. We have torn down, we do tear down, and we will tear down, but the gospel promise is that tear down as we might, if we are in Christ by faith, our future is sure, and our fate is secure. Because with the risen Christ, so too have we been risen 
and that we have been united to him already in his glory. Israel's hope, our hope, is not that we would build better. Not that we would plan better. Israel's hope is not that they were wiser or richer or better connected than Edom. Israel's hope is God's unmerited, unwavering, and unconditional love, which has been set upon them before they were born. As the Apostle Paul puts it, before the foundation of the world. In and of themselves they were no better than Edom, neither are we. And apart from God's saving grace, they would justly receive the same dreadful fate as Edom. But here, Israel is reminded that God will vindicate himself as the God of justice and righteousness, and at the same time he will vindicate his people as those whom he has loved and whom he has redeemed for the praise of his glorious grace. And the same is true for us today. And so, brothers and sisters of Christ, the promise here serves as a call for us as well. It is a call to hope. It is a call to faith. It is a call to perseverance in faith in the face of hardship and trials and temptations. In the sure knowledge that one day God's promises which we have believed in our hearts will be known by sight when Christ returns to claim us as his own. And at that time we will join with all of God's people, God's people in the past, the present, and the future in this glorious confession that great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. May God hasten that day. Let us pray. Our Father, we acknowledge ourselves to be prone to wander and our hearts to be full of doubt. And in more ways than we care to imagine, uh, we leave the righteous path that you have set before us uh, to serve ourselves and to live our own way. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your electing love set upon us before the foundation of the world. We thank you for the way in which this can, even this day, give us hope and confidence and courage in the face of all life's struggles. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would work such a deeper faith in our hearts that in greater ways, in greater measure, uh, we might exemplify uh, the assurance that is fitting your people, that we might exemplify the grace uh, that becomes followers of Jesus Christ, and that we might exemplify a hope that can only come from your Holy Spirit. Would you do this work in our hearts for Christ's sake, we ask, and in his name, amen.